last time. And it's basically uh, Greek for it is finished. And that's what Jesus, was, it, those were his last words on the cross. Kind of his last words on the cross. And tetelestai basically means it is finished. And it's, it's an accounting term. It's an accounting term. And it actually means pain, it actually means pain in full. Pain in full. And so, when Jesus said it is finished, there were many meanings to it, but one of the things we really wanted to emphasize was that he wanted to say, hey guys, the debt that you owe, the debt that man owes God, the debt that man owes God has been completely wiped forever. That's basically what he wanted to say. Hey, children, can you make this thing come further? Yeah. Yeah, so... Deathless time means that it's finished, and it's an accounting term that basically means paid in full. And Jesus' intent when he declared it on the cross was to let us know that, listen, the debt of sin owed by you to my Father has been wiped out completely and forever. The debt of sin owed by you to my Father has just been wiped out by me completely and forever. That was the whole intent. So we're going to look at a scripture to see the debt that has been wiped out and what has happened, and that's in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. And here's what it says. It says, Christ has <coughs> redeemed thanks, man, us from the curse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse. What curse? The curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then it goes on to, uh, that's one part of it. I mean, the verse is much longer. I'll read the verse first and then uh, break it up. Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then it goes on to say, That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, we bring it up into two parts. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Or three parts. By becoming a curse. And in the process, the blessings of Abraham are now ours. That's what we look at today. So when he says it is finished, Tetelestite, what he's trying to say is, hey, I've paid completely forever and forever the debt that you owed my father. And uh, uh, when we begin to expand that further, we find that what he paid allowed him to ransom us or redeem us from the curse of the law. And how did he do that? By becoming a curse. And what happens in the bargain? We get the blessings of Abraham. And they now sit upon us. So here's the first question that Christ delivered us from the curse of the law. That's what we look at first. Christ delivered us from the curse of the law. If you want to know what the law is, turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Let's go to Exodus 20. That's where it begins, eh? Go to Exodus 20. Everyone's familiar with this chapter. So Exodus 20 is when God begins to speak the words and give the Ten Commandments. Yeah? Are you there? Exodus 20. Then go on to Exodus 21. 
and the commandments still continue. This is God still speaking on Sinai. He's not done. So we think he gave the Ten Commandments and that's it, all right, I'm done. But he keeps going. 21, and then go on to 22, and then go on to 23. And at the end of 23, he takes a break. And at the end of 23, he actually tells Moses, hey, why don't you bring 70 of your elders and come and eat and drink with me? Why? Because every covenant was always followed by a meal. Every covenant is followed by a meal. Doesn't matter whether it's a marriage covenant, or the Ten Commandments, or the New Testament, Jesus started the covenant with a meal. And so this covenant too had to be concluded with a meal. So what does he say? He says to Moses, hey, why don't 70 of your elders come up the mountain? And they go up the mountain. He's just delivered to them the Mosaic covenant. And he, they say that these 70 ate and drank with God on the mountain, which is just nuts. It's not just Moses going up. Moses and 70 others go up the mountain to eat and drink with him. And so this was the law that was given to them. And Please note that the law at that time given by God was external, was ceremonial, was moral, but it was not internal. As in, it wasn't really the condition of the heart, it was the performance of certain rules and regulations that had to be met. It was moral, it was ceremonial, it was external. And what was God's intent? Hey guys, here is my blazing holiness. If you want to, be, want to be my people, these are the standards that have to be met. And he's setting them up. Saying these are the standards that have to be met. Oh, by the way, if you meet them all, these great things will happen to you. If you don't meet them, these terrible things will happen to you. We aren't even talking about an internal condition. Which is why Jesus starts off so brilliantly in Matthew 5, where he says, You have heard it said that you should not murder. But let me say to you that anyone who looks at, a, uh, anyone who, um, looks at someone with anger has already committed murder. What is Jesus doing here? He's taking what was external and making it internal, a condition of the heart, where for Israel it was an external requirement. It was moral, yes, but it was still external and ceremonial. You have heard it said that one should not commit adultery. But let me say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, then you have already committed adultery. Jesus was upping the ante by saying, hey, it is impossible to achieve this, but I have come, and once I start living in you, you will be able to achieve this. And so, when you look at Exodus 20, Exodus 21, Exodus 22, Exodus 23, you see what God spoke to them on Sinai. And now he says to them, you follow all this, and Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14 will happen. You don't follow this, and Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68 will happen. All those things that Chris read is what happens when you break the law. The curse of the law, the curse of the law is what Chris just read in Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68, and it's a consequence of breaking the law. We're going somewhere with this.
because the Old Testament writers did not have a view of God as Father, because they never met Jesus Christ, because they attributed to God sovereignty, because they assumed that evil and good comes from God, because they thought that God can tempt, because they thought that God is bad and good. They attribute everything in the book to God. So when you read it, this is the best Moses could do. That the Lord will send plagues. The Lord will send diseases. The Lord will cause you to eat your children. The Lord will strike you with diseases. The Lord will ruin you. The Lord will do evil to you. And yet, if you want to see the actual image of God, look at Jesus. Which part of this fits with Jesus? How many of us can say with any degree of confidence, and Jesus will send you diseases, and Jesus will ruin you, and Jesus will cause your family to be ripped away from you, and Jesus will cause you to eat your children, and Jesus will cause disasters to come upon you, and Jesus will do you evil, and Jesus will send you plagues. It doesn't compute. And the reason it doesn't compute is because it was impossible for people before Jesus Christ came on the earth to even figure out a God who is good. Because right from the beginning of time, ever since Adam failed, ever since he was, Eve's ear was poisoned with this thought that do you think God really means good to you when his intent is to subdue you? And God had said, listen, I've sent you to subdue them. And Satan comes and whispers in Eve's ear saying, he doesn't mean good. Ever since that, they've had such a, we've had such a distorted image of God. And the sad thing is it still continues even after Jesus has come. What the devil did with the curse of the law is he began to weaponize the curse of the law against us. He took the curse of the law and he began to use it against us. How? He is a legalist. If you go to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, you will see God in his courts. Joshua the high priest. Satan on one side, an angel on the other side. And what is Satan standing there? Accusing Joshua. What is he accusing of? Of sin. What is Joshua robed in? Of filth spattered garment, garments. And then Satan begins to accuse him. The accuser of the brethren was cast out from heaven when Christ won the victory on the cross. He cannot accuse us before God anymore. When you think of the songs we sang together today, every song says the same thing. Every song says the same thing. The first song says, I stand before and righteous. The first song says, till Jesus leaves heaven, I will not be displaced. We now still think that the enemy has the ability to take the curses of the law and keep chucking it on us. He used it as a weapon. He's used it as a weapon forever. Do you know that in Psalm 78, when it talks about the plagues of Egypt, I was talking to the young adults about it. Um, when you talk about the plagues of Egypt, when you read Psalm 78, you find that the plagues of Egypt were caused by a band of marauding evil angels. Amazing, eh? The Hebrew word for it is Ra-Ra-Malak. A band of evil angels. Psalm 78. God is a good God. He didn't change at Malachi. God is a good God. He didn't change when Adam fell. God does not indulge in evil. He does not send evil. You are evil parents. 
That's just a statement from the Bible. <laughs> you parents being as evil as you are. That's what the Bible says. You are parents that are evil. And yet, when you are come, when your kids come to you and ask you for an egg, you do not give them a, a scorpion. When they ask you for fish, you do not give them a serpent. When they ask you for bread, you do not give them stone. Why is it that we assume that a good God chooses to do evil? Is, will, will one day the inhabitants of the earth who choose to go with the deceiver, the adversary, the opponent, the accuser, will they face the wrath of God? Yes. But is God someone who sends evil and good, disaster and nice things? No. He is the one who said, can a spring produce both salty water and sweet water? Can a plant produce good fruit and bad fruit? We got to understand this in our heart. If you try to reason it with your mind, you can come up with a hundred circumstances over the last 10 days on CNN that would prove God a liar. But let all men be liars, but God be true. We do not work God's character or personality with our reasoning. We look at the word and we see the face of Jesus. And in the face of Jesus, you see an accurate image of God. I'm not trying to browbeat you into submission to a good God. I'm trying to open our eyes and your eyes to see a good God. And if that means putting matchsticks so that our eyelids stay open, yes, it's cruel, but it is helpful. Satan used the curse of the law. And here's what God is saying. Imagine how all this started. He says to Adam, hey Adam, um, I wanted to give you life, I've given you life. And by the way, uh, just so that you have uh, choice, because if there is no choice, there is no freedom. If there is no freedom, there is no love. So here, I want to place a tree in this garden called the tree of life, and uh, I don't want you to uh, eat from it. Oh, not, not the tree of life, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to place it in this garden. I don't want you to eat from it. And the only reason I'm prohibiting you from eating from it is so that you now have the freedom to eat from it or not eat from it. You have to have choice. If you do not have choice, you cannot obey me. Obedience that doesn't have choice ain't obedience. It's robotic. And where there is no freedom, there is no love. Where there is no choice, there is no freedom. So, a Bible that was supposed to be one verse thick now has 66 books because of Adam. That is all. That is the only command given to Adam. Now he had choice and he chooses. And God says, hey, by the way, I also want to tell you that there are consequences to your choices. You can have the freedom to choose, but you've got to know that there are consequences to your choices. So here's what I want to tell you. I plan to supply you for the rest of my life. By the way, there'll be children that you'll have. And if Adam had not fallen, we would have fathomed the infinity of God every day and it would never end. What were the first few days or months or years like, depending on whether you're a New earth and old earth guy. What were the first few days like? What was it like when God would walk with Adam in the cool of the evening? What were they talking about? What about God was Adam discovering? How long was it supposed to go on? Because there would never be an end to it because God is infinite. What were we supposed to fathom? How would, that, would it have been? What would, what would that Eden look like? We will get there. We will get there. God's plan hasn't changed. There is no plan B. It's always been plan A. 
It's always been planning, and thank God for something called eternity. It lasts forever, and it's as infinite as he is, because time is contained in him. So it's less finite, it's more finite than he is. He is infinite. Time is contained in God. We will get back there. There is no plan B. But what would it have been like? And Adam chooses him. Before he chooses, God says to him, Hey Adam, by the way, if you decide not to go with following me, and if you eat of the tree, I also want you to know that there are consequences, and the consequences are mut um, mut. that's the word used in Hebrew. Dying, you will die. Dying, you will die. That's a choice given to him. And Satan is waiting. Can I get these two to break that one prohibition? To supply them seductions given that they have choice so that they eat. Because if I do, I can take what God has said as a consequence and use it as a weapon against them. And the moment they eat of it, dying, they begin to die. So when God supplies these the law in 21, 22, 23, and then he come, calls them out the mountain and says, let's eat and drink together. Brilliant God. Every covenant has a meal. Someone asked me when I was in Lithuania, uh, why should I get married in a church? Why do I need a pastor to get married? Why all these uh, things that happen in a church during a wedding? I said, you don't have to get married in a church. You don't have to go, go uh, get married by a pastor or stuff like that. But remember, it's a covenant, so as long as you fulfill these seven needs of a covenant, um, you're fine. Make sure that there are witnesses. Make sure there's a meal after the covenant. Make sure that uh, there is a greater power that is um, uh, involved. And as I listed the requirements of the covenant of marriage, I think he quickly realized that the church is the easiest place to meet all of them. <laughs> so he went away quite happy, not disillusioned by the church. So, and his name was my name too. Like he, he had my name. Uh, or oh, I had his name. Anyways, that's not important. It's just that I'm Really great name. <laughs> so, Satan uses the consequence of breaking the law as a weapon. And the curse of the law that we so often attribute to God saying, God set this up. It's basically the way the Old Testament writers have to write it. Because you would not put the name Jesus in front of any of these curses that were read out in Isaiah 65. Uh, in Deuteronomy um, you would not put the name of Jesus before it, not because you were scared, but because you know Jesus better now stand in the New Testament and read the Old Testament, please look at the face of Jesus while you read the Old Testament please because if you don't, God's going to come out looking horrendous He'll come out looking really evil. And God does not change. When he said, I'm the same, I'm changing Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. He also meant in the book of Malachi and in the book of Genesis and before time existed. It wasn't that he had a heart change at some point when John the Baptist came along because he was dressed in leather. He's always been the same. So, now that we know what God delivered us from. So think, think of what we've been delivered from. Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68 is, is what we've been delivered from. These things that should happen to anyone who breaks the law. Jesus is saying, does not apply to you anymore. Can you look through that list? It's a humongous list. And Jesus is saying, I've delivered you from the curse of the law. When you write down the things that are written there, 
your heart should begin to rejoice at that chapter. Your heart should begin to say, my God, thank God I know what the curse of the law is because I have someone who's delivered me from the curse of the law. List those things down. Because it is freedom from those things. A people that used to labor under it. Gentiles who weren't even aware of it and yet were under the curse. And by the way, you're Gentiles who thought, in case you thought you were something else. And now to think that we can set free from that. So how did Christ become a curse? To begin with, he identified with Deuteronomy 21, uh, Deuteronomy 20, 21, 22, and 23. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. If you read Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, it says that. And so this is, this is how the Jews immediately identified Jesus as one that was cursed. For them, it was like an abomination when something like this was done to a man. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. If a man, uh, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The, the command to take the body off the tree was not for the sake of the dignity of the guy who was on the tree, but for the sake of the land. Because this man who would be hung on a tree was so cursed that the land would be under a curse if, if he was left overnight. Not only was someone put on a tree or a stake to be uh, punished with death, he would be left on a tree for a while so that after that, you could still shame him and everything he represented. He was an abomination before God to the point that it was best not to leave him on a tree overnight. Because if you left a man like that on a tree overnight, the land would be cursed. You can imagine how the Jews think of Jesus. How the Jews then thought of Jesus. Why it was a big deal that Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb to a man who was cursed. We think, oh well, he had an extra tomb or two because he thought, <laughs> so let's give him one. No, this was like, this was like, this was like desecrating your ancestral burial place by giving your tomb to a man who was so cursed that to leave him overnight would curse the land. So when the Bible says, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone hands on a tree. Jesus immediately identified with that in his death. That aside, imagine what's happening on the cross and imagine what's happening in Gethsemane. I'm surprised that he, he uh, I'm surprised and appalled that he was sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't the first man to be crucified. Many had been crucified. Many had been scourged. Some would die while they were being scourged. Some would stay alive on the cross. Some would die on the cross. So he wasn't the first man to be crucified. But even before crucifixion, he's sweating blood. Because what is he submitting himself to? He is about to submit himself to, or was submitting himself to, the curse of the law. 
that is supposed to fall on every human being that has ever exi existed. I do not understand the agony of Gethsemane. We cannot. Because we do not understand what it is to take the sins of the world. Taking the sin of your spouse or your child is difficult enough. You know how it crushes you. Just taking the load of the sin of your child, your parent, your spouse or a pastor can devastate and destroy, break a church, break a man or woman. What does it do? When you take this, the, the, the curse of the law upon yourself of 8 billion that have existed before 8 billion that existed, present and another maybe 8 billion that exists hereafter. What does it look like? I have no idea. I'm not even trying to describe it to you. But what Christ does on the cross, and which is why the reading of Deuteronomy 28 was so important, is that Christ submitted to the curse pronounced by the law of God. Christ submitted to the curse pronounced by the law of God. He's taking it on himself. <laughs> and by submitting to the curse on my behalf, he's saying, I ransomed you. I ransomed you. I rescued you from the curse of the law. Hey, if I'm rescued from the curse of the law, I've got to understand that I cannot go back and keep thinking that this is going to happen to me again. God's going to do this to me again. Got to stop thinking like that, eh? We'll talk about that some more. You know what the Old Testament picture of redemption looks like? Go to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21, and you'll see an example. 2 Samuel 21. Payment had to be made, guys. Payment had to be made to avoid a curse. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1 onwards, I'll just read maybe 7 or 8 verses. This was the curse that was put on Israel ages ago. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1 to 8 or 9. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Because Joshua had made a treaty with the Gibeonites saying, We swear by God that we will not destroy you. And Saul went ahead and did it, and there was a curse upon the land. There's been a famine in the land for three years. The king, verse 2, the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you, David asked. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya, daughter of Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with five sons of Saul's daughter, Merah, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Meholite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. You want to break a curse? There was a price to be paid. Otherwise, the curse of the lamb would affect, curse of the law would affect everybody. 
And so when Christ talks about being a redeemer, what he's saying is, hey, let me pay the ransom that will rescue you from the curse of the law. And on your behalf, I will submit myself to the curses that Chris pronounced. Huge, man, what has happened. Any questions before we go? God, he tells you there are consequences knowing that you're going to take your freedom and sin. Then he's already decided he's got to send his son to help you by paying a ransom. He also knows how grievous it will be. The son is not forced into it. The son says, Father, you don't need sacrifices and offering. You're looking for a body. Let me come and do your will. The sun comes down to the earth. It takes upon him the curses that are supposed to fall on us. And who causes these curses to unfold? The devil who uses sin and the curses of sin as weapons against humans. This is why the victory won at the cross was a horrible defeat for the enemy. And this is why if he can keep the church thinking that God is still not good, that God loves doing the things that Chris mentioned, then the enemy knows that even though I'm defeated, they don't know better. Any questions? Any thoughts, if not questions? Can you say that last bit again, please? Can you say, just say that again, Steve? Say what you said, On one hand, he knows that as soon as he gives them choice, that he, they are going to take the choice and use it against him. In his foreknowledge, he still goes ahead and gives them choice, knowing now that his son will have to be sent to rescue them from the curse of the law, which is the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin or the curse of the law is what Satan has been using ever since Eve agreed to his whisper against man. But the son knows that his father won't force him, so the son chooses to come and says, offer sacrifices and offerings you didn't need, but here I am, I'll present myself, let me go and die for them. Not because the father was forcing him to, but because the son loves me. Fully aware that he will have to submit himself to the curse of the law. And he comes and does that. And it was horrible. Uh, when I say horrible, I don't mean, I don't know anything about it. And he takes it upon himself. And now for us to subject ourselves to the same thing again is receiving the grace of God in vain. And now when you hear the whisper that God is bad, God is evil, God is going to do disasters to you, he's going to harm you, you never know what he's going to do, he's sovereign so he can get away with anything, ah, he is sovereign, but he's true to his character, and his character is revealed in the brilliant but marred face of his son. The cool thing is, guys, he just doesn't submit himself to the curse and therefore ransom us. 
He neutralizes it. He neutralizes the curse. What do you mean neutralizes the curse? See, he fulfills the law. And then he bears the curse of the law. I mean, God is a brilliant mathematician. He knows how to make everything. That's not what we do in math. <laughs> At least I used to do that in math. Everything would go. He bears the curse. See, he fulfills the law first. See? He, didn't, he didn't bear the curse because he broke the law. He fulfills the law and then bears the curse. And in doing so, he neutralizes the curse. What do you mean by that? The demands of the law no longer apply to us because someone who lives in me fulfills them. That's just pure excitement, eh? Yeah. With the same excitement, I don't know. The demands of the law are no longer applicable to me because there is someone who fulfilled it and he lives in me. Therefore, the demands of the law don't have to be met by me. It is awesome, man. And the curse of the law I am not subject to because he who fulfilled it and bore the curse of the law now lives in me. This, may I suggest, is one definition of freedom. Small hallelujahs will be okay. Hey. And further down, in that today, with him living in me, when I still go ahead and sin, there is someone I can run to saying, he fulfilled it, forgive me. And therefore the effects of the curse can still be undone, because Satan is a legalist, and he will continue to try to use the curse of the law against us Christians. But now there is a place of refuge. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the Old Testament, there were these cities called the cities of refuge. Mm. Where if you committed a murder, you could run to the city. In the temple, there used to be an altar with four horns on it. You could go grab the horns and you could not be killed. Cities of refuge were for murderers who may have committed a murder without knowing. We have a city of refuge every time we still sin, knowingly or unknowingly. And there ain't no secondary place like um, purgatory. It is a place where you're fully, fully redeemed, fully paid for. He freed you from the demands of the curse and freed you from the curse. Satan is a legalist. He will try to impose the demands of the curse on you. You know, it's like that stick and non-stick frying pan. I'm not an expert on those things. But I remember buying this frying pan. And 
I believe it was non-stick, so half my egg would stay on the pan. Like that's the only thing I fry at home, an occasional egg. And so when I go and try to scoop the egg off the pan, half of it would remain on the pan and half of it would come out. So I'd have to make two eggs to get one egg. So, and then I discovered that there were these things called non-stick pans. And once I started non using non-stick pans, the entire egg would appear on my plate. The point being this, that Satan will still, as a legalist, and by legalist, what I mean is, Jacob has done this, he needs to be punished. He still hasn't stopped. Today he does not accuse me before God, he accuses me in my ear, because he's been cast out from heaven. He has no place of accusation before God. So what does he do? He comes down to the earth, and he whispers in your ear. He whispers two things. One, he accuses you of things that you don't need to hold on to stick like a bad pan. And then he, he distorts the face of God in your ear, saying, God's going to get you. This is what happens. See what happened? Didn't work out. Did it? Look at it. It just goes on, man. Why do you think they call him accuser? What do you do when you still sin? Very easy, guys. Uh, repent, turn, change. Repent, turn, change. Repent, turn, change. First Peter 5, 7. Your enemy, the devil, roars around, walks around like a roaring lion, prowling around to see whom he can devour. Resist him. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Now, knowing that you have been freed from the demands of the law, and knowing that you have been freed from bearing the curse of the law when you break it, when you, when you, when you, when you live out a life that is un-Jesus-like, you know that there is place for you to quickly go and say, Abba, messed up again knowingly or unknowingly. I want to come to you running. Because in you there is change, there is a turning around. And in you there is a way to live that isn't like how I used to live. Use it. Use it. Don't wait for it. One of the lies that the enemy has used so powerfully in us Christians' lives is to, in the middle of sin, come and tell you, you've sinned. Now you better work on becoming better before you can go back to God. And it is a lie from the pit of hell because I've fallen for it so many times. It is in the middle of the sin that Christ as Savior appears in his brilliance. If you have to wait till you have eaten the pods that the pigs eat, until you have finished all your money, then you will come walking to him six months later as a servant when you could still go to him as a son before you feast with the pigs. Let's deal with the last part. Not only does he free us from the curse, Galatians 3.14 says, the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So then, there is a freeing, and then there is a... But isn't that typically God? When has God just freed you and not then lavished you? Which parent rescues their child from a situation and says, Well, I've rescued you. On you go, on you go. No. Once you rescue your child, you then begin to do something for the child that begins to make the child... Uh, restore to the child the dignity or the confidence that the child needs. 
So not only has he now rescued us, then he says, I'll give you the blessings of Abraham. Now, there may be many, um, there may be many things to the blessings of Abraham, but let me just give you the two things that I mentioned in the scriptures. And if we get those two things, we get everything else. Because there have been servants of the blessings of Abraham. Wealth and cars and houses and you know what? But let's just go for the two main things and then the other stuff will be added up to us as and when. Hey, you realize then that the diseases and the sicknesses that we sometimes labor under are the result of the curse of the law. And that it does not have to continue in your life. That you can cry out to God. Go there another day. The blessing of Abraham. Here's the first one. Blessing of Abraham. Romans 4, verse 3. Romans 4, verse 3. This is what we should run after, man, and I'll explain it some more, and it'll get really beautiful. Romans 4, 3. Romans 4, 3. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Guys, the blessing of Abraham is being made right with God, or in other words, Abraham entered into what God was doing by faith. You get this? That'd be really cool. To be made right with God is to enter into what God is doing by faith. To be made right with God is to enter into what God is doing by faith in any area of your life. What do you think uh, you do when you get born again? God has been in the business of restoring man from sin back to his father. What happens when you get born again? You enter into what Jesus Christ is already doing. Take any area of your life to be made right with God is you entering into what God is doing by faith. Enter into what God is doing by faith. Do you need healing? What do you think Jesus Christ is doing? He's already done it. He took stripes on his back. What do you think God still is doing? He loves healing. Enter into what God is doing by faith. Is there a need for provision in your life? He's a father. He likes providing for his children. Does he like doing it? Yes. Is it something that he's actively doing? Yes. Has he set principles here on earth so that he's able to help you? Yes. Well then, enter into what God is doing by faith. This is the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham is not cars and houses and wealth and sheep, and donkeys, and oxen. The blessing of Abraham is one, entering into what God is doing. Here was a man who came from the Ur of Chaldees, 
And he was able to suddenly see and hear the call of a God that the world had not known. And he entered into it without even being promised a reward. He saw a city that was built by the hands of God, invisible, and he leaves his family, his nation, his people, his stepson, his um, um, uh, otherwise Hagar, and he begins to follow this invisible God. And this man who lived before the law was given, did it sheerly by faith, and what did he do? He entered into what God was doing. And therefore God said, because you entered into what I'm doing, I want you to know that you have been made right with me. Amen. <laughs> Enter into what God is doing. Whatever God is doing, find out. And there are different ways we can enter into it, eh? I'm trying to exit something right now. <laughs> there are different ways of doing this, eh? Sometimes it's a prophetic voice. Sometimes it's a prophetic word. Sometimes it's an encouragement. Sometimes it is the word of God that speaks to you. Sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's a vision. Sometimes it's a teaching like this. There are different ways that God says to you in your situation, in your context, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. Come, come, come. Some things are already provided in this word. We don't even have to go looking for it. It's already provided. This is what I'm doing. My word stands forever. It hasn't changed. I'm actively watching over my word to perform it. Come step in. What do you think the Syrian uh, Syrophoenician woman was doing? Somehow she got the... I mean, she was a, she was a non-Israelite, man. She got the hang of one simple truth. That this Jesus, even though he's Jewish, and isn't into the Gentiles is actually into the Gentiles. And if I can go and pray and ask him for my daughter's healing, I'm about that. She entered into what Jesus was doing in the Jews didn't see, but a blooming Syrophoenician woman saw it. And so she doesn't let go. She argues. But uh, Lord, even the dogs get the scraps that follow the table. May you and I have the foresight, given that we already have the insight of the word, to see what God is doing so that you don't have to labor under things that the enemy is using, either as a deception or weaponizing against your body, your mind, your spirit, your soul. Why fall for it when this Redeemer has marvelously set me free? But Jacob, it doesn't happen uh, the last two times I prayed. Well, then pray a hundred and two times. But why did it happen when I prayed to them? I don't know. I wish I could make it happen before you even say a word. But I don't know. How all I know is he is faithful. He is true. He is kind. He is gentle. He ain't none of the things that Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68 says he is. <laughs> For he is Jesus. The invisible image of the visible God. The brilliant radiance of the invisible God. Gentle, pure, kind, helpful, friend, thirst quencher, soul satisfier, son of the living God, compassionate, gracious. The Lord bless you. Remember the sermon from last week? The Lord bless you as in I will go down on my knees and the father goes down before his child and I will bless you. 
I will give you gifts of great value. The Lord keep you. I will put a hedge around you that is made of brambles on the outside but soft on the inside so that nobody can come in. I will keep you. I will cause my face which in the olden days no man could look at. I will cause my face which is my presence to shine as in bring order into your darkness just as I said in Genesis 1. Let there be light and the void was turned into something beautiful. I will be gracious unto you. I will cause my favor to rest on you. I will be compassionate because that is my nature. I will lift my countenance upon you. So that you can come to me without any hesitation. Because you see my face is not in a frown. It is in a smile of favor towards you. And I will cause my peace to settle on you. My peace that makes up for every deficiency in your life. My peace which means restoration. This is what I give on you. You want to see God in the Old Testament? Look at the blessing that Aaron was supposed to pronounce upon Israel. And in that you see Yahweh. And you see it in Jesus too. This is who we worship guys. The blessings of Abraham. Abraham entered into what God was doing by faith. And then there's something that God gives us that even Abraham didn't have. And it's in the second part of Galatians 3.14. It says, the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. These are the two blessings of Abraham. You receive these and you have everything. Go ahead. He didn't. Because God through Abraham didn't release to him everything. Because there was no way Abraham could have handled it. Because Abraham wasn't renewed. There was no way the Spirit of God could live in him. We get something that Abraham could occasionally have descend on him but never live in him. In him. I mean, how do you think Abraham was hearing God? Sometimes in a vision, sometimes in a dream. Sometimes he would just know. Sometimes it would be angelic visitors. Mm. How did he know? This pagan whose father was an idol worshipper, Terah, knew he could hear the voice of God. How did he say, how did he hear the voice say, look up at the stars? The Spirit of God was at work in him, work in him, but not never lived in him. These are the two blessings of Abraham. Entered into what God was doing by faith. And the second part was the second blessing that we receive is the blessing of Abraham is receiving the gift of the promised spirit. The gift of the promised spirit. The gift of the promised spirit. Jesus summed it up this way before he went to the cross. I have so much more to tell you, Jacob. But I can't. But don't worry, I'm not leaving you as an orphan. I'll be gone. But I'm sending you the Spirit. Oh, by the way, His name is the Spirit of Truth. And He will lead you into all truth. He will take from what is mine and explain it to you. He will also show you the Father so that you can approach the Father directly. And what was He trying to say there? My Spirit and the Father's Spirit will live in you. Your DNA will change. You will be redeemed. You will now be a child, not a creation. And He will lead you into all truth and you can approach the Father directly. And by the way, Paul says in Romans 8.15, I just want you to know that when the Spirit of God comes into you, is He's also called the Spirit of Adoption, and something begins to transpire in you. Where the same Abba cry that used to come from Jesus' lips will start coming from Jacob's lips. This is just nuts. Any questions, guys? Want to conclude?
Okay. So enter into what God is doing for you guys. Enter into what God is doing for you. Enter into what God is doing for you. Take whatever context you have. Is it your marriage? Is it your body? Is it your future? Is it your um, vision? Is it your um, not knowing what to do next? Is it a fear? What is it? Enter, in, enter into what God is doing by faith. How can you find it out? Oh, this church knows how to find it out. If God doesn't speak to you directly, you can come to someone, pray with them, ask those that have a prophetic um, um, gifting in this church, come and ask me. There are many different ways. This church does not have an excuse for I don't know. Because there's always a way to find out over a period of time in this church. No answers may come immediately, but over a period of time, through hearing the voice of God, through listening, through verifying, through checking into the Word, we can figure out the mind and the voice of God. Not because we are experts, but because Christ likes us knowing what He's thinking. So we can try and figure that out. But enter into what God is doing for you by faith. You know, I was at the airport on Monday, uh, you know, just sitting where the planes ran at the um, south end of the airport. And watching planes, and suddenly there were these two eagles in the sky, and one eagle, and both of them seemed about the same age. How do you know the age of eagles? Eagles, you don't. They look the same. So, so both these eagles are in the sky, and this one eagle had this amazing knack of finding the thermal currents that were there, and just entering them and flying without effort. He never blew his flapped his wings. But she, how do you know it's a she? You don't know. But she seemed to just struggle, man. She was about three feet away from him, and she just kept flapping away. And then she would flap, and she would suddenly enter this uh, current that the other eagle was flying in, and then she would exit, and then she would have to flap. And I'm looking at them, thinking to myself, why can't she get it right? It could be the other way around, huh? Hmm. Why? <laughs> okay, let's change the story. <laughs> she was soaring without effort, and he was just flapping around. Can't seem happy something. <laughs> he was just flapping around, and I was thinking to myself, "Why, Father? Teach me how to do this. Teach me how to enter by faith into what you're doing, and help me to be born on the wings of your spirit, so that the things you want done happen in quick time." Instead of me flapping around in my own reasoning. Reason causes you to flap around. You will get where you need to get, but it'll take you 20 years, and I'll be there in two. If I don't flap around. Faith is placed, I'm just going to read through this. Faith is placed in the nature of God. When you, when, you, when, you have to, when you have to enter into what God is doing by faith, uh, place your faith in the nature of God. Not in your uh, understanding of Greek or Hebrew, but in the nature of God. Discover it through the word and through experience. You can only discover God's nature through word and experience, not just through the word. The word ain't enough to discover the nature of God. It has to be both the word and experience. And as you increasingly recognize His majesty and His faithfulness, it'll embolden your heart. As you increasingly recognize His majesty and His faithfulness and His grace, it'll embolden your heart. 
play that role in your heart. Hey, move from knowing his character to knowing his personality. Move from knowing his character to knowing his personality. And that comes through intimacy, eh? That comes through intimacy. One of the things that I love doing when I go to churches where um, people don't know God is I'll pray to him as a boy prays to his father. And almost always there'll be people who come up to me after the church service and says, I wish I had a relationship like that with God. Mm-hmm. Where you pray to him like a child prays to his father. You can do that when you know the personality of God. Character is one place, yes. The word is a beginning point. Then you go to his character and his nature. And from his character and nature, you go to his personality. When I first became a believer, there was this pastor called Sid Spain, who used to be at this chapel uh, in a naval base in Bahrain. And if you turned up early for the service, he'd be up on stage. And you would think he was talking to somebody, and he was, but there was no one else in the room. And it used to blow my mind. He'd say stuff like, so, Father, what about... And you would enter the chapel, and you would think he's talking to somebody, and then you would realize there's nobody there. But he'd come about half an hour before the service and have this very audible uh, conversations with the Father. And it impressed my heart so much, man. I know you have to go because you have uh, lunch appointments and stuff like that. But really, who cares? I do. <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, let's just stop there. Any questions, guys? Any questions? Okay, that's great. Hey, do we have joy to the world? Words for joy to the world? As far as the curse is found. See if you have it. I just want to say that one word. And please, if there is any sickness or disease in your body, please come up for prayer today. Let's just pray that since the curse of the law has been born, and since he was striped for my um, sickness, that God heals you today. Because the devil cannot use uh, that weapon again. So if there is any oil around, can you please uh, someone bring us some oil? Because the Bible says in James chapter 5 that if someone is sick, let them ask the elders to pray for them. The elders will anoint with oil and pray for you. And your sins will be forgiven and your bodies will be healed. Let's just have that. Anyone who has any sickness can feel it from us. So let's just sing this song before we sing. Hey, you want to sit on the keys? I know you love this song. <coughs> let's start with the first verse. It's very Christmassy. Yeah, let's start with that and then go to the as far as the curses. Oh. This has never happened. Christmas songs are perfect. 